Well, if there's one thing we've learned from Mark's gospel, it is that Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, has remarkable authority and power. So remarkable that we must conclude that he is not merely human, he must be the son of God. His authority in teaching the scriptures has been viewed with amazement by his followers. He has healed people of all kinds of illnesses, diseases, deformities, and disabilities. He has freed hundreds from demonic powers that controlled them. He's even displayed his power over the natural realm and quelling a ferocious storm that threatened the life of his disciples and his mission. No other human being in the Bible, whether prophet, priest, or king, has demonstrated such miraculous power. No mere man could do so. And yet as Mark's narrative continues, we find even more of Christ's amazing power in the passage that we read earlier. Today we unfold a story within a story mentioned in each synoptic gospel, and the Lord Jesus again displays his power over disease, not by his word, not by his touch, but automatically to one who touches his cloak in faith. But then something even more amazing occurs as he brings back to life a little girl who had died. This is the most awesome deed that Jesus performs up to this point in his ministry. Imagine the impact upon the people gathered there that day at the scene where they know this young lady has died, but then they see her come out of her house alive. As we observe these events, we're reminded that the Lord Jesus, as the psalmist says, is the one who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. The greatest disease is that of death. We'll all succumb to it someday unless we receive the saving power of the Lord Jesus who can raise us from spiritual death. So as we peruse this story this morning, a true story of the life of Christ, we're first of all going to consider the people who were involved. Disease and death always cause sorrow and stress to those who face it. The woman with an issue of blood suffered her disability for many years, which made her a castaway from society. And Jairus deeply suffered the prospect of his own daughter's death. His daughter suffered from whatever disease it was that brought her to that point. And then we must consider that only Jesus has the power to turn sorrow into joy, sickness and disease into health, and even death into life. So let's ask God's blessing this morning on his word. Our Heavenly Father, we're again thankful today that you have given us your word, that we have these stories in the life of Christ that reveal to us he was indeed the Son of God. We do pray today you'll open our hearts, our minds, to the truth of what we're seeing as uh, he heals a person from a dread disease that surely uh, would have led her to death. And Lord, that he even has the power to raise someone up from the dead who's passed away. 
Help us to realize that these are pictures of our own salvation, that he can raise us up from death to, live, to have eternal life with him forever in heaven. And as we come before your table, help us, Lord, uh, to be thoughtful of these things, to be thankful for them, and to be open to their truth. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, to, this morning, let's first of all consider the two people that are spoken about in this passage of Scripture. We first run across a man uh, whose name is Jairus, and he's a ruler of the synagogue. Now, Jesus has been on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, He's cast out a a demon, or really many demons, from a demoniac. He's now returning back, and people, of course, crowd to meet him. Uh, This is always the case with the Lord Jesus. People curious about him, people believing in him, people wanting to be uh, healed of their diseases. And now we come to the same kind of a situation here as he arrives back on the Uh, eastern side of the shore near Capernaum. And before he can get started on this new day of of, uh, helping people with their problems, we're told that one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And this is one of the few people that Jesus comes into contact with that actually is named in the word of God. We're told that he is a leader or a ruler of the synagogue. That means the local uh, meeting place for the Jewish people. And he was a prominent elder in the city because he had authority in that particular situation. And with the other rulers, he would be responsible for the welfare of the synagogue building and the organization of worship that would uh, take place there every Saturday morning. And he he would have been well-known by the people and he would highly... Uh, have been respected by them. As, as he comes and he sees Jesus, he falls prostrate at his feet and he has a very serious request. This demonstrates to us his reverence and his respect for the Lord Jesus. We have found that there are those uh, who were in leadership positions that did not have this kind of respect for the Lord Jesus. And apparently this man was not one of them. He obviously believes that Jesus has power to heal or he would not have come and made this request of him. So his request unveils a very serious situation in verse 23. He begged him earnestly saying, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. He comes to Jesus, he falls down, and he begins to beg him to help him in this situation. That really conveys to us his despair, his distress. And imagine how you would feel in the same situation where your child is sick, they're very near death, and there's really not a whole lot you can do about it. Luke informs us that this is his only daughter, and we see from verse 42 that she's only 12 years old. He uses the diminutive form to describe his affection for her, my little daughter. So she lies on the verge of death. Nothing can be done for her. She might pass away at any moment. So Jairus begs Jesus to come and heal her, believing that he can. And he needs to do this right away because who knows how long she's going to last. Now let's consider this for just a moment. 
Those of us who have children today know that parental love runs deep. Perhaps one of our concerns, even one of our fears in life, when we have children, is that we will somehow outlive them. That's not the way things are supposed to be. That's not the norm. Nevertheless, sometimes it does happen. I can only imagine the anxiety in this man's heart. Years ago in um, South Carolina, where I was going to school, we had a a young family in our church whose five-year-old boy died of a brain tumor and how that impacted the church and that family and just uh, how upsetting it was for such a young person uh, to go on to be with the Lord. We have some children in our congregation today that are in that age bracket. They're only uh, 12 years old or somewhere close to that. How would we feel if one of them was taken from us? How would the parents grieve? How would the whole church be upset if that was the situation? It would be devastating to the parents and the congregation. We're often grieved when we hear this kind of thing happen to people in the neighborhood and uh, 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 how it makes us feel, how we're sad when something like that happens. And uh, it's just a a deep pain, a sorrow, uh, even when you don't know them, how much more when you do. I remember when our uh, son Jeffrey had his first seizure. He was just a baby, and I didn't know what was happening, and uh, suddenly I just had a fear that we're going to lose him. So I know just a little bit about what this man might have been experiencing. You know maybe a little bit of what he was experiencing, but uh, it was a, a deep sorrow and despair as he came to the Lord Jesus that day. And what a relief it must have been as we're told that Jesus immediately began to go back to his home with him. But then imagine his anxiety on the way when they're delayed by this other person in a tragic situation holding things up. So now we have the explanation here given of someone else in that crowd who is also seeking the Lord Jesus, a woman with an issue or a flow of blood, and she wants to reach the Lord Jesus. She wants to touch him and be made whole. So let's take a look at her despairing situation, her condition as well. Well, We're told here that something was wrong with her. There was some kind of a slow hemorrhage in her body, perhaps related to her female anatomy. It was a chronic state of bleeding that could not be stanched. Now, this had been her condition for 12 long years, we're told. So think about that. The same time that Jairus was experiencing the joy of fatherhood with his little child, this woman had been suffering those 12 years with her chronic ailment, and this ailment would have brought her great shame and misery in that society. Furthermore, we're told here that she went to numerous physicians for help, and of course, um, they were not able to help her. She suffered from them. We, we go to a physician to relieve our suffering, not to increase it. But in this situation, that seems to be what happened. 
Uh, she suffered many things from the physicians in a bad way. So whatever they prescribed for her to do had no effect upon her body. And she even spent all that she had trying to get uh, better, but to no avail. And we're told in our text here that actually she kept on getting worse and worse and worse. We're told here that uh, in verse 29, uh, this affliction or this uh, condition is called an affliction. Uh, that word literally means a scourge or a plague. And we may well uh, have an indication there of the pain that she was suffering in this as well. So again, can you imagine her sorrow, her despair of having that affliction, not for a few weeks, not for a year, but for 12 long years. In our day and age, we can get relief almost immediately for many ailments. We can take medicine to relieve pain and suffering over the counter. We can go see our doctor and, and usually get some relief from what it is we're suffering. Uh, of course, there are still many serious and painful illnesses and diseases today. Um, we're all aware of the effects of the COVID virus. Some of us suffered severely from it. But can you imagine uh, being in that condition, that state of being sick, of being afflicted, of being in pain for this lengthy period of time? And it would seem that as she's getting worse and worse and worse, that death is imminent. But as we think about the physical, there was even more than that going on. This is not all that she suffered as a Jewish woman. She also suffered not just physically and emotionally from this, but, but she suffered socially and she suffered spiritually. A Jewish woman of that day uh, was very closely attached to her home, her family, her social circle, and her synagogue. And if she was married, all these uh, things would have been swept away because of her condition. The Old Testament law declared that if a person had an issue of blood, that person was unclean and anything they touched became unclean. So that meant they could not go and worship God at the synagogue or the temple if they lived in Jerusalem. This may also have meant that she could not live with others in a dwelling because of her unclean, constant condition. And some have suggested that because of the uncleanness, her husband actually could have divorced her. She couldn't have contact with close friends. She would have been banned from the worship of the synagogue. And some uh, would have believed that she was being punished by God because this was an ongoing thing. So she must be not right with God. So all that was dear to her, her health, her family, her worship, this was all taken away because of her disability. So in that kind of a condition, how do you think she felt? Certainly she was full of sorrow, she felt perhaps abandoned, hopeless, depressed. Is it any wonder that she sought the Lord Jesus that day in the middle of that thronging crowd? 
So here we have two people suffering in different ways. One is a result of disease and perhaps impending death. And another because his little girl is at the point of death. And they reflect for us the deepest sorrows of life. Suffering despair and helplessness. But each of them sought the only person who could provide for them any hope of change, and that was the Lord Jesus. So let's take a look then at the power of Christ to deliver from despair and even from death. Now as the story goes on, this story within the story, the larger story being Jairus, wanting his daughter to be healed. But this woman comes now who's got this affliction, and she kind of interrupts the proceedings. But nobody else really knows what's going on here except us, the reader. And we're told here uh, in verse 29, uh, actually we we, uh, need to back up here about uh, verse 27. Now, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. So there's the notation of her faith, of her belief in what Christ could do. Now, she didn't approach Jesus openly as Jairus had, Perhaps she was too embarrassed about her condition and didn't want uh, uh, attention paid to her or become a public spectacle. And in her weakened condition, remember, she's getting worse. Uh, I'm sure that her physical strength is waning. And this crowd is just thronging around Jesus as they always did, jostling him, and, and, and somehow she makes her way through that crowd to get close enough to touch Jesus, and all the while she's trying to get to him, she's constantly thinking, if I can just get close enough to touch his garment, to touch his clothes, to get the hem of his garment, that will be enough to make me well. Now that may seem a little bit superstitious or even magical, but it's the way people thought in that time. They believed that someone proved to have healing power, it would extend beyond their physical body to the clothing that they wore. And she thought that by just touching his garment, it would be the same as touching his person and receiving that power that he had to provide healing. Previously, in Mark's gospel, we've seen people approaching Jesus in the same way. We're told they pressed upon him to touch him, believing that was enough for them to be healed. Later on, we'll see that people have the same attitude toward Peter and Paul. If I can just touch their garment, I'll be healed. So her faith is genuine, and her faith is recognized by the Lord, so we know that it's genuine. Now, when this all occurs, we're told in verse 29 that she, she is able to reach out to touch his garment. Immediately, the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of this affliction. So she she senses that, that that flow of blood has stopped. It's dried up. 
new strength surges into her. She's now healthy in her body. She experiences wholeness that she hadn't had for 12 years. And and, uh, what joy must have come to her mind as she actually feels this going on in her body. And at the same time, she just kind of slinks back into the crowd, happy and pleased to go her way and not bother Jesus because she knows that he's the one who healed her. But the Lord's not going to let that happen. He's going to reward her faith. Because in verse 30, Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? Now, you would probably be thinking like the disciples were, are you kidding me? You've got, you've got people uh, crowding around you and jostling you and touching you all over the place. Uh, what are you talking about? Well, Jesus is aware of the difference between the touch of a jostling crowd and the touch of somebody who believes that he can heal them and that that power is going through him. He knows the difference. He knows that someone came and touched him in faith. I believe he knows who it was, but he has to turn to the crowd now and ask the question, point them out, and perhaps he's searching for this person that he knows, and he sees her, and when they make eye contact, she knows she's been had. And notice her response here is Jesus looks around to see who had done this thing, who had touched him in verse 33. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Now, I don't know what was going through her mind, um, why she was uh, fearful and came to him in this uh, frame of mind. Uh, perhaps she was afraid of being chastised or, or punished because she, she touched him without permission. Um, was she afraid of being pointed out before the whole crowd? We're not sure what went on, but we, we do know that she came, she fell down before him, she confessed to him the whole truth of her condition and why she sought to touch him in the first place. So the crowd's aware now of everything that's happened to this woman and why she came to Jesus and the fact that uh, without uh, even uh, looking at her, saying anything, touching her, she was healed. So again, there must have been some sense of amazement of what happened in the crowd that day with this woman. And so the Lord validates her faith validates the truth that she has been healed in this way. The crowd observes it, it, the disciples observe it, and Jairus observes it, which is something that is good for him because he's asked for another kind of healing. And it's interesting here that as Jesus responds to her in verse 34, he said to her, daughter, This is the only time in the New Testament where Jesus addresses a woman, daughter. And it kind of reminds us when his family came and wanted to take him home, and uh, uh, they said, your mother and your brother's outside, and he looked at the crowd and said, these are my uh, mother and brothers and sisters. He's thinking in terms of the spiritual family of the Lord Jesus, the family of faith. 
And so she seems to be in this family, as he says, your faith has made you well. There's no healing without faith, without trust in what the Lord Jesus is able to do. It's her faith operating in the power of Christ that's made her whole and brought her into this relationship with the Lord Jesus. He then tells her to go in peace. A lot of times that's kind of like goodbye, uh, have a nice day, that type of thing. But this phrase literally means go into peace. That's more than just a parting blessing that he gave this woman. She'd been in a state of despair and sorrow and anxiety and no peace. And now she's moving into a state of permanent peace and wellness. And again in verse 28 and here in verse 34, it's significant that the verb to make well means to save or deliver from danger. It's related to the, uh, the term for salvation in other parts of the New Testament. So the added blessing of peace with this particular term may indicate or have the nuance of salvation in a spiritual sense. So her faith has brought her into the kingdom of God. Now, the scene shifts back to Jairus and his daughter. What about him? Who knows how long this may have taken, how long this may have delayed the journey back to his house and the saving of his daughter from death. Well, we're told in verse um, uh, thirty-six, well, 35, while he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter's dead. She's gone. Why trouble the teacher any further? So in their mind, uh, there wasn't any point in Jesus coming. Daughter's passed away. She's gone. Uh, that's the end of it. So you know, let him do something else. Um, and imagine how Jairus would have felt at that announcement. And might he have been thinking, well, you know what? If we haven't stopped here for this woman, she might have, he might have gotten home in time to save her. But note Jesus tells him, do not be afraid, only believe. Now this woman had believed, she had faith, you need to have faith like she did, don't be afraid. And he proceeds to go to their home. Even though the circumstances seem irreversible, don't be afraid, have faith. Now they get to his home, verse 37, he, meaning Jesus, permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So this inner circle of three, and maybe only three because the house would not have been a really, really large house. But they become an inner circle of Jesus' disciples. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. Obviously, when something like this happens, people start crying. They're, they're so upset. 
But in that part of the world, people are very outwardly emotional when these types of things happen. And in that day, they actually hired people, professional people, as mourners to come and wail and play flutes and things of that nature and just kind of add to the whole tumult. So there's, again, a crowd of people here, friends, relatives, whoever, and they're weeping and they're wailing because they've lost this little girl. But Jesus comes and approaches these people. He says, why make this commotion and weep? Why is everybody all upset? Why all this racket? And then he says something uh, pretty astounding, pretty amazing. He says, the child's not dead, but sleeping. And that seems to be contrary to the facts, doesn't it? Why are you making such a racket? She's not, uh, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. So does this mean, as some people think, that she had slipped into a coma and she appeared as though she was dead and Jesus was going to just revive her? Well, no. Because we are told here in verse 40, the people mocked him. They ridiculed him. Said, what are you, crazy? We all know she's dead. Don't be saying that kind of thing. That's going to upset people. So what did the Lord mean when he said that then? Well, later in the epistles, in the word of God, we find that sleep is a euphemism for Christians who have died. They sleep in the Lord, awaiting for his coming and their resurrection into a new spiritual body. But that's down the road a ways. And this is a different word that Jesus uses here that alludes to an impermanent situation or an impermanent state. She has died, but not in a final and full sense because Jesus is going to raise her from the dead. So in his thinking, she's sleeping, waiting for him to come and raise her up. And then... He, uh, he, he puts the other people out, uh, and there is some sense of force in that, forcing them to go out. He took the father, the mother, and those who were with him, the three disciples, and entered where the child was lying, probably a small bedroom. So those who were ridiculing, those who were mocking, those who were not understanding, those who didn't have faith, they're put outside. But those who will witness this, those whom he said you need to have faith, they come in and they're going to see exactly what he does, what he says, what he's going to do. And so he goes into that room. Verse 41, he took the child by the hand and he says, Talitha kumai, which means little girl. And some have suggested that it also could be uh, mean my little lamb. I say to you, arise. And guess what? She arises. Those are words of life. Those are words of resurrection coming from the mouth of the Lord Jesus, who's not merely a man. He's the son of God. And he has this kind of power even over death itself. So how could those people who witness event, this event not be overcome with great amazement, as we uh, uh, say here, Verse 42, immediately the, the girl rose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. 
Now, could you imagine that? Going to somebody's funeral, and uh, all of a sudden the person gets up out of the coffin. Uh, people would be more than amazed. They'd probably be screaming and running out of the building. But Jesus has the power to raise somebody who has not just had a disease that would probably be imminently uh, causing death, but death itself. Now, there's only two other prophets that had done this in Israel's history, Elisha and Elijah. Each one, one person on uh, an occasion with great difficulty... And we know it was the Lord who created that feat or, or completed that feat through them. But now Jesus does so with no difficulty at all, with just two words. So how could he not be the promised son of God? Well, what do we learn from these events? Well, first of all, Jesus is sympathetic to our sorrows, to our pain, to our anxiety, to our distresses, no matter what they might be. We may sometimes suffer in similar ways that these people suffered. We all suffer different kinds of experiences in life, and sometimes that can be very severe. It may be physical, it may be emotional, it may be mental, it may be spiritual in nature, but we, we have to realize the Lord knows that. He understands that. We can feel despair, discouragement, even depression over some of the issues of life. But he is there. He knows that. He sympathizes with that. And it's then that we need to go to him most and be in his word. And sometimes, usually, he's the uh, only person uh, that can be our source of relief and healing in those times. So don't be afraid to seek him out like these people did in their time of distress. Secondly, the healing of the woman is a picture of salvation and the need for faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone can save us from the debilitating effects of sin in the life that causes us to be spiritually unclean. Nobody can change that condition but him. His death on the cross paid the penalty for all our sins, and his resurrection from the dead displayed his power over death and hell. And what he requires of us is faith, belief that his work can save you and deliver you from the disease of death. Only in that way you become spiritually well and go into peace with God. And finally, the raising of Jairus' daughter teaches us Christ's power over death itself and his ability to raise up people one day into new life. Now, of course, uh, this was a, a resurrection back into physical life. The daughter of Jairus would die again. But it also shows us that Jesus has power over death itself. Soon he would raise himself up from the dead into a glorious spiritual body. And he promises to do the same for all those who put their faith and trust in him for salvation. If he's able to do that to himself, 
He's able to do that to all who believe on him for salvation. So let's remember these truths as we come before his table today. Our Heavenly Father, we're again thankful for the Lord Jesus, for his power over disease that leads to our despair, and also, Lord, over death itself. We know, Lord, that in the story of the gospel, it won't be long before he goes to the cross, before he dies, before he lays down his life for us, but then takes it up again. We're thankful, Lord, because he paid the price and the penalty for our sin. We have that hope of eternal life with him. Bless us with these thoughts we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.